Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Paul Jarrell-Galaire, delighted to see everybody here for this very, same, very special St. Bridget's Day uh, gathering and discussion. Um, I'm very honored right at the beginning uh, to welcome uh, Algonquin uh, Anishabe Elder, Claudette Commander, to begin with the land acknowledgement, if you might. So a big warm welcome for Claudette. She's armed with a cup of tea. You couldn't be more Irish. <laughs> now that's a compliment. It is. Thank you, Ambassador, for inviting me to be here with, um, for this exciting event and to share, to share this time um, with the community and as well as to share the time with a new friend that I just met. Kwe kakina. Kwe. Greetings to each and every one of you. My English name is Claudette Commando. I was born and raised in my community of Kitagon Zibi, Algonquin First Nation, which is about 100 miles north of here on the Quebec side. But who I am, is Kani Kinu. That's who I am, in my people's way, in my culture, my language, and my identity. And I welcome each and every one of you beautiful people. I welcome you here into the homeland, this beautiful, unsurrendered, unceded homeland of the Algonquin people. The homeland that has been entrusted onto us since time immemorial. The homeland that the Creator put in to the hands of our ancestors. And our ancestors that walked, lived, and are buried here in these lands to ensure that we would be here and that our lands and our identity and culture and our ways of knowing and being and doing would be here forevermore for our children today and tomorrow. And we must always think of the seven generations who stand behind us what will come. So greetings to each and every one of you and welcome to the homeland of the Algonquin people. Um, now, I want to introduce uh, our first guest, Bridget Brown, though. So please join us, Bridget. Myself and Bridget have been working on and off over the years. She is the, uh, well, first of all, she got a Presidential Distinguished Award Medal for her services on Compton Resolution in Ireland. Wow. She is Professor of, yes, wow. indeed. She is Professor of Political Science and Peace Education at St. Mary's and the Lead Coordinator of the Peace Education and Conflict Management Program under my own department's Reconciliation Fund. And she's devoted her life to peace and reconciliation. So Bridget, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So can you just tell us how you came to uh, deservedly get a presidential award? Well, first, I will just, I will start with a, a tiny bit of Irish. Ahara, Eamon. Very good. Thank you very yeah. much for inviting me. And thank you to everyone for being here. I'm extremely grateful and privileged to be here. So your question was, how did this get, why is this? How did you get an award from the president? And I know it was deserved, but what, in a, in a nutshell, what kind of work were you doing? Um, this award was not my award. This award, while I was the recipient and certainly may have had a role to play in um, 20 years of peace building, uh, primarily in the north of Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, and it was built on the efforts of thousands and thousands of individuals, children, teachers, peacemakers, activists, from the island itself and from abroad. So while I was very humbled to um, stand up and receive this award on behalf of those who deserve it, who really deserve it, those who are on the ground working diligently um, to promote a very promising peace process 
on the island of Ireland. So it's to them. Yeah. I, I, I defer to their um, receipt of this award. No, it's a very important point because very often people misread a peace process. And I remember one of my senior officials saying the Good Friday Agreement is about a few good men in a room. And I'm thinking, no, it's so many more people and the kind of people that you're talking about. And, and that work is still ongoing. So could you just tell us a bit about the stuff that you're doing now, particularly in Belfast, because when we, we celebrated 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, and yes, we have more peace walls in Belfast and in Northern Ireland generally than we had when the agreement was signed. There are still very divided communities and very contentious issues, but you're working with people to yes. build a better future. Yes. I am the uh, fortunate, um, my granda is from the uh, Shankill area, of Belfast for those who are familiar with the city. And so my background um, has allowed me to work very seamlessly and in a very meaningful way with Across the Divide, for which, um, for which Eamon has, um, has spoken. And the work has been going on for over 20 years. In fact, I'm, I'm delighted to see my colleague um, and friend, General de Chastelin here. <laughs> and I might just digress a tiny bit. When we were in Belfast, oh, maybe 15 years ago, um, General de Chastelin was welcomed everywhere, across every divide, as a hero. And I, I can only echo that. Um, highly, highly admired representative of our, you know, of our, our country. So I'm very, very grateful to have had some guidance from you for along the way. So fast forward, what am I doing right now? What are we doing right now? Um, we are developing um, a number of different unique programming opportunities through the Reconciliation Fund, um, including a Center for Experiential Learning and Exchange, which I have been working with uh, the ambassador on this particular plan and others. Um, this will involve uh, cross-community, grassroots um, efforts to try and not only engage youth and young people in the process, but also to um, ensure that we are working in every cross-community capacity uh, possible, which we have. And um, I'm delighted to say that as things move forward, um, one step forward, one step back, uh, the people of Northern Ireland will be self-determined in their, uh, the island of Ireland will be self-determined in what they see as the result. I am simply the facilitator and connector of individuals who normally would not mm -hmm. connect. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the quiet, behind the scenes, peacemaking, uh, oh, by the way, St. Bridget didn't come in her CV there, but mm -hmm. she was a peacemaker too. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that would be uh, certainly part of what I've been focusing on is uh, trying to cross these divides in a seamless and compassionate and caring way. While there are many um, individuals who are power empowered on the island of Ireland, there are many who are not. And part of my mandate is to reach out, particularly to those women mm -hmm. who are marginalized, who do not have a voice in the dialogue and in the importance of negotiations, both, both preventative and uh, post-conflict. And so that is part of my effort is to work very concertedly um, in these areas where it has been very difficult to connect with yeah. people. That was really important work, and I'd certainly like to add uh, my comments about uh, John de Chastelain's role. I mean, literally, he and his fellow members on the Independent International Commission on Decommissioning literally took the gun out of politics and took the gun out of conflict, but that doesn't mean the conflict is over. People think because it's violent, that's what the conflict is about. The violence is an expression of things that are very often, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on this a bit more, uh, inherited trauma, cross-generational trauma, Absolutely. and identity issues, 
and finding ways to kind of bridge those gaps and to widen people's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what uh, Bridget talks about when, she, when, when we refer to experiential learning, which of course can be and should be cross-cultural as well, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the other point is that conflict in Northern Ireland, while it went on for 30 odd years, it was concentrated in a very small group of locations which still suffer deprivation and, and, um, and poverty as a result. So a huge amount of work still to be done. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you. Now, Claudette, please join us on stage. Now, I remember, Claudette, we were speaking once. Yes. And your acknowledgement reminded me of this because you said the unsurrendered as well as unceded land, going back to Constant Pinacy, the uh, Anishinaabe leader in this particular area around the Rita River and so on. But I remember you were saying to me that you, you, the, the idea of unsurrendered came, I think, from your father. Um, what you, can you just tell us something about what you learned from your, as, as you were growing up from elders and your parents about this kind of approach to the world? Good question. So what, what did I learn? Um, and it's a very good question. Thank you so much. And it's given me that opportunity to share, to share who I am and, and um, the road that, or the path that was made for me ever since I was a child. So my, the mentorship or my mentorship started at about five years old. And at that time, my grandfather was the chief of our community of Kitagon ZB. But back then, we were not called Kitagon ZB. We were not allowed to have our own names because everything was, we were ruled by the iron fist of the church and the federal government. And there was an overseer that was placed on our reserve called the Indian agent. And he was not an Indian. He was a white man that was deputized to oversee and to control us. We were not allowed to leave the reserve or, or even to gather. But my grandfather instilled into me as well as to the family that to be proud of who you are, back down from no one. My grandmother taught me you have a voice, use it and let no one take your voice. And she also said to me, do not be afraid of anyone because we're all human beings and we're all equal. No one's higher and no one's lower. But my grandfather had uh, taken me under his wing and he had taught me. And I really appreciate that because it was during the time when we were not allowed to leave the reserve. We, and people were in other Anishinaabe or First Nations or other tribes, peoples were not allowed to come into the community. So many times people from other communities or tribes had to come in in the middle of the night because we were not allowed to gather. Mm. And you had the Indian agent and you had the RCMP and you had the missionary that were constantly watching to make sure. But my grandfather was very stern with and assertive by saying, this is our land. It belongs to us, this is who we are, and no one is going to stop us from doing what we need to do. So he instilled that, number one. Mm -hmm. The second thing he did was ensuring that I was always with him whenever he had meetings. And it wasn't just meetings of our community, but of the various tribes across Canada and United States that came in in the middle of the night. And he told me, he said, Namadabi, and what he said was, you sit here, don't say anything, just listen. And I really appreciate that because every one of those people that were there were leaders. They were the, what you would call the activists of today. And you had to be active, you had to be militant in that way, you had to be radical because we couldn't, we had no freedoms of movement or voice anywhere at all whatsoever. But I listened to each and every one of those. And and as I'm sharing this with you, I still could see myself sitting there on the floor and looking up and seeing all these people and listening and learning. And what my grandfather said, the first thing you need to learn is the history of our people in this land of what's called Turtle Island or North America. And he said the other thing, and as I grew older, he was teaching me more. Mm. So I learned the history of my, not only my people, the Algonquin people and our community and our nation, but I learned the history of all our nations across Turtle Island. And I learned about our rights, those inherent rights, and as well as those 
political rights, treaty rights, or what do you, now you want constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate learning that because he said to me, in time, you will, you, will, you will know why I'm doing this for you because when you become a grandmother, hey, I'm five years old. <laughs> right? Like, you don't, you're a grandmother, like, you don't see your child, right? He, he said, you will, when you have your children and your grandchildren, you will know, you will understand why I'm doing this for you, because there will come a day that you will go out to the world and you will have to teach them. You will have to speak. You will make enemies. You will make, you will make enemies. But just keep speaking your truth, because the truth someday will be heard. And he also taught me that the importance is that, yes, our language is so important, and thank you for speaking your language earlier. I really appreciate that, because language is our identity, and it connects us to the land and to our creator and all our ancestors. He said, yes, learn your language. Yeah. But he also said you need to learn, and pardon, I'm not insulting anyone here, but he said you need to learn the white man's language. And what he meant by that was not just the English or the French, like English speaking French, tu vas parler français. No. He said, you, learn, you need to learn the white man's language. He meant his legal language. Mm -hmm. And you use his legal language. Never steer away from it. Because if you don't use his language that he created for you through his laws, then you will, are, you will see our rights eroded. And you will, the government will wash its hands of its fiduciary obligation to our people. So he taught me to say our land is unsurrendered because that's in the legal documents of not only Canada but Great Britain as well mm -hmm. in those treaties. Mm -hmm. He also said they called us Indians and you need to identify yourself as a North American Indian. Give them back their language because then you hold them accountable and you owe them to task for the responsibility that they owe us, right? Mm -hmm. So we always said, our land, we never surrendered our land. We never did. We never sold our land. We never gave it away. We shared it. Mm -hmm. Shared it. Mm -hmm. So today, the government and its policies or its legal language doesn't want to use the word unsurrendered because they say, oh my God, then we have to admit that, we're, that this land belongs to these Indians. Mm -hmm. So they're using unceded. You know, some people will argue and say, well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. By saying unsurrendered is much more powerful, much more strong, well, obviously strong, powerful, and it holds them to account. So that is what my grandfather taught me. If I could sum it up in those three, mm -hmm. three ways is what mm -hmm. he taught me, and that is where I am, why I am who I am today. I started out as a rebel rouser, <laughs> now I see myself mellowing out. Oh, you're not that mellow. So. Oh, you're not that mellow. But I, but actually, it's an interesting. It is an interesting point, though. That how can you how do you balance kind of righteous anger and activism, advocacy, and persuasion? It, it's a, it's a, it must be a, you must it must be a balance that you have to strike in your in your mind to make it to be effective. Yeah, that's true. Mm. I'll tell you why. You're turning me into a rebel rouser. Rebel, rebel, rebel. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, back in the day, well, you see, today there's more freedoms, right? Mm. Whereas, as we, our people now are being given that uh, that space to speak and to share of who we are, whereas in the past it wasn't. And I really have seen the change, especially in the last, we'll say, 10 years, but more so in the last seven years, mm -hmm. where there's much more of um, Canadians coming to, um, to accept us, put it that way, to accept us. But back in the day, um, we had only one, one way in, in to express ourselves, and it had to be in that, we'll see in that radical moment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And radical moves meaning we had to gather our people from across, from one end to the other end, and constantly march onto, the par onto Parliament, constantly have to speak about who we are, and, and of course we were called the aggressor. And, you know, you just held that, that radical ways and that rebel-rousing ways because it was the only language that the government and Canadians understood when it came to our people. Because, hey, the reality is they were killing our people. That's mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to deny the truth, but that's the truth. 
Mm. Still killing our people today anyhow in different ways. You, I'm sure you've all heard about Indian residential schools. I'm sure you've all heard about the federal Indian day schools. I'm sure you've learned about the child welfare system. I'm sure you learned about uh, murdered and missing indigenous women. I'm sure you learned about the numerous colonial assimilation policies that have been imposed on our people. So we've had to, we had to be radical. We really had to in mm -hmm. order to be alive today. Mm -hmm. And in order for our children to be proud of who they are. And in order for our generations to know that this, is, this land is where they come from. And this is who they are. But how do I balance that? Well, and now it comes to, again, my grandfather teaching me. And how he summed it up was this, because one time I asked him, how do you do it, Gramps? This was December 19, 2011, when he called me and said, come and spend the day with me. I need to talk to you. I said, OK. We had a beautiful day together. And in that moment, I said to him, how do you do it, Gramps? How do you do it? Every day you face opposition. Every day you face the racism. And you, you faced more racism than I have in my lifetime. But yet, you, it doesn't faze you. And you know what he said to me? He said, there's two kinds of ignorances in this world. One is the ignorance that people don't know any better, but they want to learn and they want to don't change. The other kind is they're bad and people won't change. Don't waste your your intelligence and your strength and your wisdom on those kind of people. Work with those that want to change. Mm -hmm. Speak the truth always, and you'll see people will, will change. All right. But he also said, you got to love them. You have to love them. You got to kill them with kindness, but you got to love them. And at that time, I said to my grandfather, well, I, I'll love them all right. <laughs> right? <laughs> So I'd love to give them one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're so radical. Where'd you get that? I said, geez, I don't know. <laughs> because back then in the day, my grandfather was radical. Right? Yeah, yeah. But he says, you have to love them. You have to pray for them. And you have to, but don't, do not let anyone take away your principle yeah. and your mm -hmm. integrity. And speak the truth always. And so that's what I've done, and to balance that. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, being negative is not going to make any changes. Yeah. yeah. But including everyone is what I say to people when I'm asked to come forward and do a blessing or a welcome. I say, we don't impose our ways on anyone, which is true, we don't. But everyone is welcome into our prayer circle, everyone. Everyone is welcome into our circle of learning and sharing. You know, I will speak my truth. I will share who I am. You take it or leave it. And for those that don't want to believe or those that don't want to respect that, that's fine. You've got to leave it. Now, just to turn, Bridget, uh, Claudette is coming from within a movement that is looking for recognition and change. Um, you're, you're coming really from the outside to a community and it's kind of a different role that you're playing. Mm -hmm. um, is, do I get a more of a sense from you that it's less anger, more empathy or sadness when you see people damaged by conflict and poverty, by, even by stereotypical behaviors, loyalism, for example, putting huge emphasis on masculinity, for example. Do you see that in your work day to day? Absolutely. And, you know, a segue from what Claudette has said is that you must approach with compassion and love and still stick to your principles. Um, in my role, I would, while I am an outsider, I still have enough of an inside connection by means of my, my background with both communities that trust has been gradually developed over mm -hmm. time and it takes time mm -hmm. and there are so many connections between what you have said and what the people I have had the privilege to work alongside in Ireland and that is issues of identity, issues of language, issues of post-colonial violence, intergenerational trauma, we could go on and on but what that does say is we have a great deal of common ground That's right. and with common ground we can learn from one another. So 
I'm not, I, I tend to digress. So did I? No, I, yeah, no, it's fine. No, I get that. I, and I think there is a, there's a rich area there for commonalities. And I think commonalities are a way of also people understanding that their circumstances are shared and it relieves some of the, the, the burden and oppression, I think. I do want to duck back though to, because it is St. Bridget's Day and ask both of you, um, maybe Bridget first, for your uh, instances or experiences of misogyny in your life. Where did you come across that? Or when did you first awaken to it? Where do I start? <laughs> okay, we, we don't do have that date? long. Yeah. Do have a year? If you could tell a story, maybe. I'll just, I'll share a quick story. When I was 17, I joined the Naval Reserve. This is quite a long time ago. Um, 86, I needed a job. So joined the Naval Reserve, and when they were, after basic training, when they were you know, calling out trades for people and assignments for people, I thought, well, I'll be a cook or a band. I didn't play anything, but I thought that sounded reasonable. I also was a bit of a rebel rouser. Right on. And um, they assigned me diesel mechanic and then sent me to the West Coast. So um, that was a very male-dominated trade and the effort at the time was to increase the presence of women in these trades. I think I was one of two women throughout my entire training on the West Coast. So I was exposed to a ton of misogyny. Mm. Um, and I suppose I'm also the beneficiary of a great deal of the positive outcomes of the work of many women before me because despite that misogyny, I knew I could do the job just as well as any man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. No doubt. Absolutely no doubt. Maybe better. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, Claudette, kind of same question for you, and coming from a, a kind of a different circumstances, but probably similar experiences. Misogyny in your, in your, in your life, as well as your professional life. What is it, has, has it been qualitatively different being a woman, do you think, in the kind of work that you've been doing? Well, you know, that is a very darn good question. But before I answer that, I'm going to answer the other question earlier when you said, how do you f I find a balance, you know, from being a rebel rouser to an educator? Because mm. education is so important, right? And that's when people feel at, in a comfort zone and they, you know, are more receptive of listening and understanding. But to answer this question about uh, misogyny, well, the way I can answer it is, you see, the, um, this discrimination or prejudices, racism, it, it's like my, my good friend, the late Patricia Montour said, for, for an, an Indian woman or an Anishinaabe woman or a First Nation woman, they're attacking you first and foremost because you are First Nation, number one. Mm. And, and the second is, you're, and if you're a woman, then it's a double whammo. Right? Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, I've had experiences you know, with that, and, and sometimes it even comes from your own people. Yeah. But then again, that's because of colonialism. They've been t affected by colonialism. Mm -hmm. So they've taken on that role as a colonizer, and how, in the same way as Europe saw women, women were down, whereas where our, in our societies, women were the bosses. They were the leaders. Nothing moved and nothing went without our women in the communities. We decided who the leaders were. We decided the governance structure. We did, we did everything. And nothing moved without our voice. That was taken away from us again by the patriarch, which was imposed on us by Europe. And then there's a, still a law in Canada called the Indian Act that really continues to oppress our women. So yes, you know, it's from our, our own people. And what would you say to uh, young men or older men in terms of what they need to do? You know, <clears throat> I also want to, to say that, um, and you know, I've got to be honest, that discrimination against me because I'm a woman and many times has come by women, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And again, that's whatever reasons of insecurity, colonization or whatever. But my greatest mentors and my, those that stood with me and held me up were men. 
Interesting. My father, my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers. Because they, they knew, and again, that's, you ought to think about the time period too. It was a time period when, when our traditional ways and our, our governance structures were still intact. They were still intact, so they, even though they were governed or ruled by the Indian agents and, and the Indian Act, nevertheless, our ways, of, our traditional ways and our ways of doing and knowing and being, they were still intact. And, uh, and it had to do with them respecting the role of women and, and who we are as life givers and, and that we were leaders in our society. So there was never really a divide between you know, men and women. Mm-hmm. It was very collective and cohesive, but as time went on, then you started to see that divide, that divide, and then, okay, well, and especially when the Indian Act was really imposed on us, well, the men are the authority and the women are here. Mm-hmm. So now we have to, we're, we women in our societies as Anishinaabe women or First Nation women, we have, um, we have reclaimed our traditional role. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even a process of gaining first, because we always had our rights. We always had our rights in our societies, in our governance structures. We always did. So we had to reclaim it. We had to reclaim what was always there, and we had to revitalize mm-hmm. and then restore it onto ourselves as well. And there's still a lot of work to be done sure. with respect to the uh, misogyny. and to get rid of that. Yeah, and it was an interesting point because I was at an event last month uh, recognizing Indigenous Disability Day, mm. a very powerful speech. Um, uh, one of the speakers said that, uh, he said, there is no society without women. They are the core, they are. Without them, we are nothing. Um, Bridget, I mean, do you think things have gotten better? Because I did a, I did a chat recently with uh, Jacqueline O'Neill, who is uh, the Canadian government's um, uh, ambassador for Women, Peace and Security, and we discussed this issue about the pushback, that there's quite a bit of resistance over the last 20 years that you know women uh, asserted themselves, demanded their rights, there were improvements here and there. Mm-hmm. Here in Canada we have half the cabinet as women. At the same time there seems to be a pushback, is that your sense of it? Is it, is it a case of two steps forward and a step mm-hmm. back, or have we started something irreversible? Oh no, I I'm dysfunctionally optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Have to be. Um, Yes, two steps forward, some Mm. steps back. Mm. What I think is rather illuminating for women, particularly disenfranchised Mm. women, uh, Mm. women in vulnerable um, communities, whether they be First Nations women or Irish women or Mm. loyalist women or whomever, is to um, understand, and, and as I listened to your interview, um, wonderful interview with Jacqueline O'Neill, um, the importance of women understanding the United Nations resolution on women, peace, and security, and the importance, similar to what you've said, the importance of understanding that legal language, that, that level of bureaucracy and legalese that, that would be difficult for me, let alone someone who had not received the privilege of a formal education. Mm-hmm. But yet these women still need to have a voice and, 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 and don't recognize that that's there. Mm. Um, you, does that mean, because I, I came across this as well in Northern Ireland, that very often women were, were affected by, the women who were affected by conflict uh, within their societies didn't even recognize that they were. They didn't realize that they were living in a society conditioned by conflict and machismo and all of the things that come with it. Was that your experience? Uh, yes, and it still is. Mm. So wow. there is certainly a significant segment of society. For those of you who aren't aware, in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland, depending on your uh, background, <clears throat> 97% of children are educated separately. So that in and of itself. Um, I think helps to define in part. You mean separately between Catholic separate, and Protestant? Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, in working with um, loyalist communities and loyalist women, the dynamic for the women in these communities has been very much to take a back seat, if a seat at all. Um, with the exception of um, a few very notable women, Linda Irvine, if you've not heard of her, I would strongly recommend you, you um, look her up. She is a woman from the loyalist background who has taken language on as part of 
the identity for all Irish. And so teaching people within her own community of loyalism a language that they you know, ostensibly would not be too fond of. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, I believe that there is a great deal of promise. Mm -hmm. Just working with these women in Belfast a couple of weeks ago, a group of loyalist women where we had the opportunity to bring in a principal, education, I'm with you on that, Claudette, it's all, it's all about education, it is. isn't it? We brought in someone who would never, ever have entered this particular part of Belfast without some support. Um, so he was coming into a loyalist area and he ended up teaching philosophy to a group of loyalist women who couldn't have been more engaged and enjoyed the session and the organic nature of people coming together and women coming together mm -hmm. in that space. And, and again, with a man who is, who is helpful. And, and my granda too, mm -hmm. this is where I've learned many things back to that question as well. Interesting, yeah. Now we've touched on colonialism and Claudette, uh, you have too. And it's a very big, clunky subject at the moment, and it's kind of informed a lot of debates. Um, I mean, in your day-to-day -day work, is it something that you're, you're, you're both conscious of? I mean, obviously in Northern Ireland, in a way, Northern Ireland itself is a chunk of territory that has emerged from a colonial process and a decolonial process. In, a, in the South, we don't actually talk about colonialism. It's a really interesting, it's almost a taboo, a taboo word in the South. It's like we looked forward. It's almost like a taboo word here in Canada, that Canadians, at least the white settler community, kind of recreated itself in the 90s under Pierre Trudeau and kind of created a Canada with a very specific brand that doesn't talk about that. Uh, have you got any reflections on how living, how living is history as a factor? Living it every day. Mm. Mm. Living it every day just to, uh, you know, the question of uh, colonialism. And you're right. Um, it's like a, a taboo word here in Canada, or the vast majority don't believe that there's colonization here in Canada. I, know I remember back in 2008 when, when Stephen Harper, he was the Prime Minister at the time, when he said, Canada does not have a colonial history. And I think all of us just kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, okay, you got to bring me to that man. <laughs> Kick him in the shin, slap him on the head, but anyhow, you know. But He's making... Can... <laughs> give, give him a bit of your five-fingered love. Right. Yeah, yeah. I love you, buddy. <laughs> so, but you see, even to think that way, what is it telling you? Yeah. Is that you, they live in this world of denial, and anyhow, um, and so whenever... You, so here, here's Canada is on this movement of reconciliation right now with First Nations people, right? And, and I've seen change, absolutely, which is good, good change. And there, yes, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And, but, you know, we've got to stay positive that change is, is happening. So um, when people say to me, well, you know, why are you people complaining? You know, uh, you got your freedoms. So here's what I say to them. And they say, well, you know, there's reconciliation. You've got to be happy about it. I say, okay, well, is there the Indian Act? Yes. Do we have our land back? No. Are we still on reserves? Yes. Is the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs to control us? Yes. So we're still living in, col in a colonial times yeah, because yeah. there's still colonization, whatever you want to call it. Post, whatever. No, for me, I just call it colonization. Period. Still there. It's yeah. still there because we don't have the freedoms to our, our, our lands. We don't have the freedoms to our ancestral lands. For example, we don't even have freedoms on our reserve lands mm -hmm. because it's governed by the Indian, Indian Affairs and wh whomever the minister is of the time right now, there's two ministers that are, they, are um, they hold our lands in trust for mm -hmm. us. So, so we have Kittagon ZB, that's where the reserve is community. Ottawa and all the surrounding area of Ottawa is our ancestral territory, unsurrendered. Mm -hmm. We don't have access to our lands here, none whatsoever. So there's still colonization, right? yeah, it's yeah. still here. Yeah. And does that mean, and some people will say, well, how do you want to break free from all colonization? Simple. Two words. Land back. 
That's just it. Mm -hmm. we, this was always our land, will always be our land, no matter what title, whatever terminology falls under. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point because you could argue in Ireland we, we eventually got it back actually between the Land Acts from 1870 and 1881 onwards, we actually did get it back. Just the same question before, and I do want to open it up to the audience, uh, Bridget, same question for you, that sense of history as, as a trap rather than a liberator, is that, do you get that sense in the North? You must do. When you oh, walk yes. by the murals and the, the flags and the curbstones, it's all over. We're living yeah. a very similar, or you know, experiencing a very similar, um, it is a colonized society. Yeah. And um, as people, uh, yes, yeah, so absolutely would experience that. And in all its various formations. So yeah. mm -hmm. um, similar things to what, and if, if I just wanted to just direct back to what Claudette had said is, they want their land back. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said that once actually about Northern Ireland. We want it back too. Yes. You know, yeah. Anyway, could we have some maybe questions or feedback from the audience? Have we got any comments? Pass. Yes. I have two questions, one for each of our wonderful speakers. I'll start with Bridget. And uh, Bridget, years ago, uh, Mary Robinson did, had a program where she brought Catholic and Protestant children from Northern Ireland to Canada. And I'm just wondering, is there any... What was the result of that? Is it still ongoing? Any comments you might have? That's your question. Then I'll talk to Claudette. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll throw out the second question. She'll oh, remember. She, no, I won't. Yes. <laughs> the second question's a bit longer. Uh, Claudette, I, I had the privilege to meet William Commander. Is it your father or grandfather? Grandfather. Grandfather, yes. I had a privilege to have a little conversation with him once. And um, he said something I'll never forget. He said, we were talking about land. And he said, all land belongs to the great mother. That's right. Yeah. And I found that very beautiful. And so I've never, I do have friends of Kitty Connick, north of York. Right. I've never asked them, so I'm asking you, do you consider in your community that the land is communal? Like if the land belongs to the great mother, that says to me, there isn't deeds that say, this is my fence and this is my little garden, and don't you let your tree throw nuts on my land. You know, that sort of thing that they do here. So that was my question to you. Thank you. And I should say, Pat, of course, for many, many years, was uh, you were a teacher yeah. on, uh, on one of the reserves. Uh, first question to you, Bridget, about uh, the exchange programs and the value of exchange. Mm -hmm. So those, are, those programs were very interesting to me as well. Though they were dated back during what would have been the height of the conflict, 80s and 90s. So what I can tell you is that for the past 20 years, over 500 university students have raised the funds and annually offered conflict uh, peace education workshops to children across all divides in, um, well, in, in, in the north. So we have continued with that exchange of youth and um, connection around conflict. That is so important. Um, so, yes, that's where we're at. Just as a comment, there was an exchange program with young, young kids. I think it was called the Partnership, the Irish American Partnership, and they, they would bring kids from Northern Ireland to share experiences, but bring them to America. I think most of the kids came back and said, I want to emigrate, actually, to America. <laughs> that, was, that was the lesson that they learned. They loved it. Anyway, yes. <laughs> sorry. Wow. Um, Question of the Great question. Mother Land, yeah. Good question. So I'll answer it this way. Yes, we own the land. Well, it's community. It's community. How it's community, always been that way. However, the Indian Act is the one that's imposed the separation of our lands. That we're gonna map this out, this this is what you could use, and we're gonna issue you a CP, a certificate of possession. See, it's not a, a fee simple ownership. It's a certificate of possession, but we still hold on to our traditional belief and our traditional ways that our land, and I'll take Kitigan and Zibi, my community, as an example. Yes, there are, everyone has their own lot set aside or where their homes are, and they have a, the certificate of possession, but we all know that we all own this, own this as a community. And the land is so important to us because it's something that we don't own the land. We, 
We belong to the land, right? And Mother Earth is so important for everything and for every reason. And we have to, and why the land is so important to us when we say this is our land, because we were created here, we were lowered here. The word Anishinaabe, it means Anishinaabe, from whence above you are lowered to live upon Mother Earth, right? And I am Anishinaabe, O Mama Wenini. O Mama Wenini is who I am as an Algonquin person. O Mama we we're together. We're the hunters, the gatherers, we're the nomadic people, right? The land is so important to us because it is who we are and we need to ensure that our children, and we leave it for our children, and then we leave it for our grandchildren, and we leave it for our great-grandchildren, and we leave it for, and that is why we, when we say land back, it's not because we're, we're saying we're, you know, we want to make a billion dollars off of this. Yes, we need to generate revenue from our natural resources because we need to live too. But land back is because it's our land, Nindaki. When I say Nindaki, that means I am the land and the land is me. And it is so important. It is so important because with, without land, mm-hmm. who are we? Yeah. Without land, who are we? Well, it's a really interesting point because under Breton law, land was held communally. Right. And uh, so there is, a, there is a parallel there. And then, of course, the Gaelic chieftains surrendered it and had it regranted under English land, under English law, I should say. And therefore, if they rebelled, they lost it. But it was a way of converting one form of ownership into the colonial. Because people often make, make the mistake thinking that colonialism is weapons. It's actually the pen and the bureaucracy and the law. That's true. But anyway, sorry, we have some other hands up, I think. Yes. Hi. Um, first of all, hail Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a journalism professor Carleton University, and I'm seventh generation uh, Irish pagan witch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my folks are from Cork. So, uh, um, so old Ireland, right? Um, so I'm, um, I've also been part of uh, Queen's University's Witches Institute and Ottawa U's Witches Week. So I stand here asking you, Claudette Commanda, a question. First of all, I think this is actually a historical dialogue. I've never attended something where we are um, speaking about uh, the land Mm -hmm. from an Irish perspective and from an Indigenous perspective here in Canada. And so I feel feel the history of this moment. Thank you. Um, My family landed here because of a church. Um, They had to follow that church. Uh, they were actually pagans, um, but they followed the church, as we sometimes do. Um, the churches took over the homelands, all of them. Uh, but once arrived on Turtle Island, they, my family, my lineage, could have shown kindness when they met uh, the people here. And so from that perspective, I deeply apologize. Maybe they tried to show knowings of ravens, bears, grasses, shores, grandmother to grandmother, maybe. Um, But these great grandmothers, these wise women, they could have sat together and shared much more, and they didn't. My family and those of Ireland continue to occupy these lands. Um, They're not theirs, so give the land back. I ask you, does repair work start with us, the women here? We're here together to do better. What can we do to listen better, to repair better, build better? Thank you. What can we do? Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Um, very emotional. Um, but Jimmy Wedge, Jimmy Wedge, uh, and what I said in my language was that, my little sister, thank you for those beautiful words and thank you for your love. When you began, you said that um, how the church imposed its ways on you, 
you began as who you, who your people began as who they, they were gifted to be in that original way from the creator. People of the land, because all people are people of the land. Some have lost it. Many have lost it and don't want to reconcile with that. I'm talking about people overseas, you know, colonizers. Um, see, my people were always spiritual people. But religion was imposed on us, and it was beaten into us. And unfortunately and sadly that many of our people are still strangled by religion which is again internalized colonization. But I'm a firm believer in that, you know, choose what you want to believe in, that's your choice. But please do not impose your ways on me. I don't impose my ways on you and let my people, let my people worship and celebrate who we are in our traditional Anishinaabe way and it all comes from the land. And you know, perhaps a time back then in that day and age, we'll say your grand, your, your descendants. Not, it's not that they didn't know any better. It's because it was imposed on them and they were taught that. But can we make a difference? Absolutely. And you just did. And that's what we have to do. And change will come. And goodness will rise. And that new, and that spirit and intent of those treaties that were signed between the First Peoples, First Nations people, and settlers. The spirit and intent was about sharing, sharing the land, not taking the land, not destroying us, not imposing us. So my little sister, we have that opportunity to walk together and make that change and move forward today and tomorrow for all our children. Mm -hmm. And let us make that medicine wheel together because you are, all of you are on in, in our people's creation story. All of you are in our medicine wheel, all of you. And as a matter of fact, the symbol, that symbol, the Navajo nation, the Hopi nation, that's their symbol too as well. And it is our symbol too as well because it speaks of the four directions. And look in the medicine wheel, there's four directions, four races of people, four colors, and, and it shows the sun. We're always with the sun. So to you, my little sister, and to all of you out there, yes, it's never too late. Let it begin now in peace and friendship, and we'll make that change, and we'll show them how, what was always intended by the Creator, that we all live together in peace and harmony on Mother Earth and to respect everything that she's provided to us, the water life, the plant life, the trees, the medicine life, and our relatives, the animals. Never forget them. Chimigwech, thank you. I think, um, I think, uh, I think it was Mark, Mark Luther King, to paraphrase him, he said, the great narrative arc of the universe bends towards justice. It may take a while. And in the peace process, when times were rough, and it was very rough in the peace process, one thing uh, one of our senior uh, officials used to say is we have the duty of hope. Mm -hmm. you know, no matter how difficult it got in the peace process, certainly very bad days in the 1980s, uh, we have a duty of hope. You have to keep going. That's and, right. and that's how you change things. Thank you for that contribution. Um, I'm just wondering, I have a question for cancer. As a university student, what are you hoping to bring um, to the university within your experience as a first nation? Good question. I'm bringing me. <laughs> it's more than enough. <laughs> I'm bringing me and my people and all my ancestors and our wisdom and knowledge through education to share, to share, to share our wisdom and our knowledge, to share the truth. And, and, and the truth will be told through education because I'm a firm believer in education. And education comes in various ways, not just, you know, with, an, with a book. It, it's in various ways. It's just sitting down together. You've got to come to my tea time with the chancellor because you get to know me, I get to know you. But what I want to bring 
is that um, the, the, you know history, because I love history, mm-hmm. history, uh, the truth, and, and that truthful side of history, no matter how dark it is, right? And to, just to, to listen and to appreciate and respect, and uh, hoping that education will, will, have, will be done differently, providing that safe space and people to share, to share their wisdom and knowledge. But importantly, because I'm Algonquin and this is on the university is on Algonquin land, to educate the, all of the university, including students, about who are the Algonquin people and what we have contributed to what has become the city of Ottawa. And it was always called Odawa, which means a place of trade, right? Because I'll tell you that when I was a student at the University of Ottawa way back in 1987, and <laughs> walking the whole entire campus, I felt like a complete stranger in my own homeland. I still feel like a stranger in my own homeland sometimes because that's how people make me feel. Um, and then I realized that they know nothing about First Nations people, and they absolutely know nothing about Algonquin people. They know nothing about whose land this is. They didn't. And I said, I'm going to make a change. And what I did was I started the Native Students Association. Then I went on to establish the Aboriginal Resource Center. And then I went on to become a professor. And then I went on, of course, sitting as a chair of the University of Ottawa's Aboriginal Education Council. But all that was for the purpose of educating. All that was for the purpose of raising awareness because it was important for everyone to know, to know about my people, that we're not out of mind, out of sight, that, well, oh, we did exist and we're still here, <laughs> right? Because I can remember the day when I went to, to the president of the time, when I asked him this question. I said, so what, what do you, okay, back in the day we were called native and then we were called, no, Indians and then native and Aboriginal and now indigenous. None of these are in terminologies at all. <laughs> we're Anishinaabe, period, right, in our own languages. So I went to, to his office and then I asked him, I said, so what do you have here for um, Indian students? Because we're accustomed to using the word Indian. No, no, native. And he said, he didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> so I said, how the hell am I going to talk? So then I said, okay, what do you have here for Indian students? Well, he thought, he was, he thought I was asking about East Indian people. <laughs> and then I said, how do, he, he, he didn't understand. So I said, how do I make him understand who I'm talking about? I said, the first peoples of Canada. They, um, he didn't, and I, unfortunately and sadly, I had to use terminology of what they called my people. I didn't like it, but I had to. And mm-hmm. then he understood. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he said, there's nothing here for you. I said, well, this is what I want. And he said, anything you want, what do you want? I freaking took my <laughs> I said, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity, right? I said, I want to start a, a, a Native Student Association. I want our own office. I want A, B, C, and D. And he says, you have it. You have all my support. Because I educated him, mm-hmm. I, that awareness. And so, lo and behold, time goes on, and now I'm graduating from my law degree. And uh, the president uh, says to me, uh, you know, he shakes my hand and he says, we're so honored to have you here. Because I was dressed in my regalia, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, the honor is mine. You're on my people's land. <laughs> <laughs> Always got to make a political statement. There you go. <laughs> right? You haven't lost us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. anyway, but thank you for that question. And I do hope to see you on my many events that I will eventually have on campus. Great. <laughs> so final word then maybe to Bridges. Uh, well, we, we know what uh, Claudette wants. She's made that very, very clear. I just want to think of it, to, to end it off, what would you like? If, I want if, Claudette. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get her to Belfast, yeah. Yay! Yeah. Um, and, and really, and I am quite serious about that. I am also one who perseveres to try and create positive change in areas that I can, and, and to do so with great humility and with the... Um, uh, the importance of people's self-determination. Mm-hmm. So I would like to um, be working with 
Claudette, and seeing where things may go as we have experiential exchange, common ground, and um, lots of other common grounds. So see where that goes. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming, but also for everything that you do to make this a better world in big ways and small. So to, uh, to Bridget and Claudette, big thank you.